0: morning, church. Today we start a three-week series, a brief series on the subject of what it means for us to be one people. I'm on a stool because I had knee surgery a few, about 10 days ago, and I also have a very sore throat. So, if anything good happens today, we'll know it's the Lord. Right? <laughs> and with that, would you join me in a prayer of lament? How long, O Lord? Will your church be divided along racial lines? How long will the lingering effects of animosity, injustice, and pride mark your blessed bride? How long, O Lord, will my white brothers and sisters not understand the pain in those whose experience is different than ours? How long, O Lord, will my minority brothers and sisters struggle with distrust and feel misunderstood and ostracized? O God, Grant us the heart to weep with those who weep. Give us empathy and understanding. Create trust where there is pain. Give us the grace to persevere, to repent, to forgive and to love. Make your church our church, the united bride you want her to be. Oh God, these divisions of mistrust and historical bias run deep. And without you, nothing will ever change. And so, Lord, in our pain and in our weariness, we express our hope that you, Jesus, can change our hearts and unite the church. We believe the gospel is greater than our divisions. And we long for the day when the world will take note of how we loved one another. So, Lord, help us. Help us to meet each other in this prayerful journey. We come today to love to listen, to lament, to learn, and then to leverage what you will do in us. So Lord, hear us today as we weep together that we might walk together. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, amen. I want you to imagine with me a vast sea of people standing in front of Jesus. Everyone is wearing a white robe and has in their hand a palm branch, and in a collective unified anthem, this mass of humanity say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With one voice, this anthem washes over this massive crowd because Jesus of Nazareth stands as the victor. Sin is defeated, Satan is banished, and redemption is accomplished. This scene is compelling, not just because of the celebration, but also because of the composition of the crowd. You see, this eternally assembled multitude are the redeemed saints from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Imagine the tapestry, the beautiful tapestry of skin color, the varying shades of ethnicity all assembled in the presence of the King of Kings, African and Hispanic and Asian and Native American and white and black and Pacific Islander and South American, all praising Jesus. Imagine, imagine, imagine Hutus and Tutsis from Rwanda. White and African Americans from the United States, Brahmins and Shudras in India, white and black people from South Africa, all proclaiming their allegiance to the risen Christ. Imagine, historical prejudices are gone. The pain of partiality and injustice is 100% erased. Superiority and pride will never again rear their ugly heads. Standing before the throne of God is a global, diverse, unified multitude rescued by a Jewish carpenter named Jesus. This, beloved, was God's plan from the foundation of the earth. It is that Jesus bought himself a people, one people. That's the vision for these next few weeks that we'll be together, to help us look and act more like the church that Jesus bought. And my dream is to help our church lead the way and continue to facilitate a work of God's spirit among us in order for us to continue to bridge the divide that exists in the church in the United States today. I'm sure you've heard the statement before that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's true. Tragically, the effects of hundreds of years of slavery and the legacy of segregation under Jim Crow have created canyons of pain and distrust even though God calls us to be the body of Christ. And then you add to that the political, social, and media landscape only serve to fossilize those divisions and create echo chambers of information and opinion such that instead of building bridges toward one another, it feels as if these racial fissures are widening, maybe even deepening. Sure, there are examples of multi-ethnic churches who are thriving in their diversity and in their spiritual health, but on the whole, the evangelical church in America does not look like heaven or like the church at Antioch. And if we're honest, it has hurt our witness. On the whole, our culture is not marveling at our unity across ethnic lines. No one feels the need to create a new name for Christians because of our inexplicable and otherworldly unity. And most of us aren't even sure what to do about it, let alone how to talk about it. So what my hope and prayer is, is that the church, our church, would be able to do what John Perkins described as when he said this, that there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. Let me first survey the landscape. When we talk about this subject of racial reconciliation, there are a number of issues, some that are risky. Let me give you four. Concerns. Number one, some of you when we talk about this subject are immediately are concerned that this will be divisive. You're understandably nervous because you believe talking about racism only makes things worse. I get that. But my counter to that would be to say that ignoring the issue of racism has been the issue in the church. And the Bible calls us to deal with hard issues because according to 1 Corinthians 11, it shows us our level of maturity. Secondly, some people think that this is an issue that is distracting. Some would argue that it attracts from more important issues like failing marriages or sexual sin or wayward teenagers or pornography or the challenges of singleness. All of those are legitimate issues that need to be addressed. I would just suggest to you, though, that over the last 10 years, we've given far more time to addressing those issues than we have the issue of racial reconciliation. Third, some people will think that talking about this will somehow dilute the preaching of the gospel, or a familiar refrain is this will take us down a path of liberal theology. And what I hope to do over the next couple weeks is to show you how connected the issue of racial harmony is to the gospel, and also for us to wrestle with the fact that theologically conservative churches have often been on the wrong side of history as it relates to this topic sometimes even complicit in racial disunity. Number four, disappointment. Other people, especially those within our minority community, have hopes and dreams that have been dashed in the past. They may be worried about being disappointed yet again. And what my hope and my prayer is, is through this sermon series, is that we can make some progress to continue to facilitate a beautiful diversity that is taking place in our church, some things because we've tried and other things just because God is on the move. Now there's probably many more concerns. I'm happy to address those personally with you after the service, but I think this is a good starting point just to get a landscape view of what it is that we are entering into. I know full well that talking about racial harmony invites us into a complicated and potentially loaded conversation. But I would also tell you, that's where the gospel does its best work. So let's go. Colossians chapter 3. I want to show you two points and then some applications. Gospel position, gospel practice, and then some next steps. In Colossians 3, we find a helpful text that connects spiritual position your posture, how you approach a conversation, and practice. And as is so common in Paul's letters, he starts with a theological foundation and then begins to apply it in many different ways. Let me show you where this theological position begins. Look at verse one. He says, "'If then you have been raised with Christ, "'seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So when Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, that's a theological position. I mean, physiologically, you weren't raised. What the Bible says is that if you know that you're a sinner, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that means that when Christ came out of the grave and declared death to be defeated, he also declared sin to be defeated, which means that in your life, when Jesus rose, you rose. Because he's alive, you can live. Text continues. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's another position. So you've risen, but you've also died. The idea is that when Christ died, you died. When he rose, you rose. That means that the fact that your sins are forgiven if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe the gospel is completely conditional on whether or not Jesus is alive and whether or not he died. So the essence of your forgiveness and the reason why your sins could be as far as the east is from the west is because you share in the victory of Christ. What happened to him has been applied to you. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the essence of grace. And what Paul does is he begins his argument by saying, you need to know who you really are. You need to understand your position. And the reason that you need to know your position is because when you understand your position, then you can know how to live. Then you can know how to relate to one another. Then you'll know who you are. Look at verse 10, actually verse nine. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, notice here, Paul reverses the argument in terms of the order. Instead of first saying, here's your position, now live like it, he then says, don't lie because of who you are. He uses position on the back end to justify godly behavior. Speak the truth, because you're the new person. Don't act like the old person. That old person is gone. Live like a new person. So from both perspectives, Paul argues using positional truth in order to help motivate people towards godliness. Notice that the text says, in verse 9, that you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, In knowledge, rather, after the image of its creator. Notice, Paul says there's a new image that you're striving towards. You're you're being created into something new, a new image that's reflective of everything that God is. That word image is important. It, It refers to kind of how you think about yourself. Your perspective, how you see the world and how other people see you. And I would argue that the thing that impacts image, how you see yourself, more than anything else is your culture and ethnicity. Probably in ways that you don't even realize. The home that you were raised in, the people group that you hung out with, all of that built the fabric of how you think in life. And some of that stuff is so foundational that You don't even know that other people are raised differently or think differently. For example, my father and grandfather, grandmother were born in the Netherlands and they immigrated to the United States in the 1940s. They took up residence in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And why there? Well, because there were other Dutch immigrants there. The culture was a good fit and there were people who could help them. And, growing up in Western Michigan, with that Dutch influence, there were particular values and presuppositions that were just part of the air that we breathed. Things like hardworking, frugal, disciplined, and not very emotional would characterize Dutch people, in general. If you don't believe me, just hug a Dutch person and feel how warm it is. I mean, my goodness, the Dutch figured out how to reclaim their land from the ocean. And my name literally means early up. (laughs) So like when Napoleon made Dutch people get last names, my people said, we're gonna be the disciplined of the disciplined, right? We're gonna get up early. So I love that heritage, but it isn't perfect. Even in ways that I don't really realize. You see, because it's my culture, there are aspects of that culture that I don't see very clearly. Every culture has this. There are blind spots, presuppositions, beliefs that are hard to deconstruct because they feel so foundational. And when you discover that those things are in fact presuppositions or they are foundational assumptions, that can be emotional, and sometimes it can be really painful especially when your presuppositions collide with somebody else's presuppositions and you don't know what to do with it. I'll give you an example. Some of you, last Sunday when we had our worship set and we were doing a particular call and response and our worship leader's doing a great job and what was going on and on and on in that process, some of you, it was not just not only not your style, but some of you went to a place where you were like, I don't like this, and then you thought, because I feel this way, it actually has to be wrong, so you started to look for ways that it was wrong. And what happens is your culture and your background takes you down a path that you feel first and then you look for why it's wrong. This is why people from the same cultures tend to gravitate towards one another, it's just easier. In fact, in the 80s and 90s, there was a church growth movement, still a little bit within the thinking of some people that if you want to plant a church and have it grow quickly, then you need to have a homogenous group of people, people who have the same values, who like the same music, who like the same teaching, who dress the same way. You want to grow a church fast? Do that. It's true. It works. But the question you have to ask yourself, is it right? So, look at verse 11. In the midst of all of this, Paul then says, in verse 11, here, what's here? Here's the church. Here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what did he just do there? Well, what Paul just did is he just identified the most prevalent image markers within that particular culture. He says there is this new people. Here, there's a new people. The dead and raised with Christ community. The new self community is a new people that's foundational to the most obvious, strident, divisive categories in any culture. He says this identity is more foundational than ethnicity, which he says Greek and Jew. Religious background, circumcised or uncircumcised. Cultural, barbarian or Scythian. Scythians were barbarians of barbarians, right? And socioeconomic, slave and free. The point is that the gospel gets underneath the most basic categories and the assumptions of life, and the gospel has the power to transform those image-based divisions. Now, I've used a couple terms already that we need to define because part of the problem with this conversation is if you don't know a definition of terms, then we begin to go different directions. So let me give you some definitions. I've used the term ethnicity. What do I mean by ethnicity? By this, I mean classifications of a group of people based upon culture and or geographic origins. So what I described in Western Michigan is a ethnic culture. Because there's Dutch people there, Dutch people have a culture. So ethnicity: Dutch, German, African, Asian. There's a ethnicity that's related to origins in terms of geography, and classification based upon culture. Now, what do I mean by culture? Culture is typical beliefs, behaviors, or customs of a group of people. Give you an illustration: If you go to Meijer and you walk down the cookie aisle, you will see particular. Um, almond cookies that are on the shelf and you'll pass by them and they will mean nothing to you and they mean everything to me. Why? Because those cookies was the only thing that I could eat after Sunday morning worship when we went to my grandma's house and I was starving. That's what those mean. And what happens in a Dutch community is you go to see grandma and grandpa every other week, at least in our household, and so you go after services, and I mean, my little stomach is growling, and all I have are these almond cookies, and to this day, when I get those cookies, I sit with a cup of coffee, and oh, I am in Dutch heaven <laughs> because of the culture. Or I was raised in an environment that basically had this narrative to it. If you work hard, you can get ahead, so work hard. Prejudice. Prejudice are beliefs and attitudes toward a person based upon that person's association or group. Sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're positive. You project your experience on a person because of your experience with others. That's what prejudice is. Now, let me go a little deeper. Let's talk about two words that are loaded. Really loaded. Race. And racism. The term race has a lamentable history to it because it goes beyond the category of ethnicity. It goes beyond British, French, Dutch, Italian, African, Asian. To be clear the Bible tells us there is only one race, it's the human race. But what happened is that over time Ethnicity was deconstructed into categories that no longer had anything to do with what geography you were from, but had everything to do with the hue of your skin. (laughs) Ethnicity went away, and instead, the dominant category in the United States for many, many, many years was white and black. Or, to use the term then, colored. Now, why did that happen? And how is it connected to racism? Let me explain this. I'll be back to Colossians 3. I have a purpose for why I'm sharing this with you. I'm going to come back to the text, but you don't understand the text. You can't exegete this text if you don't understand this. How did the category of race in the United States develop? Here's what one author says. The economic machine created by Europeans was expanding at a torrid pace, and its dark secret was its reliance on slave labor as its primary fuel. The horror of slavery was a major moral crisis for America, but instead of acknowledging the sin of that enterprise, we went in the opposite direction. We began to de-emphasize the differences within various European ethnicities and began to describe white people as a human collective that was inherently superior to people of color. Again, I promise you, we'll come back. I'll explain why this matters, but I just want you to hear that, and I know that that's heavy. It's important for you to know the history related to the word race. What about racism? Well, racism is what happens when race becomes a socially constructed word and then gets baked into the culture, the systems, the language, the laws. So by the end of the 19th century, white as a race, was an all-encompassing term. And the roots of that word are in the grievous sin of slavery and the belief that whites were superior. That's where that word came from. So racism then takes that word and it systematizes it. It uses racial ideology and thinking and then makes its way into language, how we talk, how we talk about people, racial slurs. Laws, think Jim Crow, culture, how we think about society, and who we can hang out with and have dinner with, and who can live in our neighborhoods, and who can marry our children. So, racism then had enormous effects on how people relate to one another. Let me give you an example. If you were to trace the immigration pattern of the Irish to America, you would learn that in their early years they were mistreated, they were oppressed, they were seen as inferior to other European ethnic groups. And because of their suffering and their mistreatment, they formed a unique bond with African Americans. They lived in the same neighborhoods, they competed for the same jobs, and in fact, in the census of 1850, it was the first time the term mulatto was introduced, and it was used primarily to describe a person who was born of both Irish and African American descent. Interestingly enough, the Irish immigration overlapped with the development of the social construct of race in America. And since Irish people wanted to be accepted, And since they wanted to be accepted as white, they embraced racism against African Americans. And in essence, the Irish walked away from their ethnicity and instead embraced the racial category of white in order for them to be able to get ahead. And they're not the only ones who did that. Their ethnicity was eclipsed by race, and racism within the culture of the United States allowed them to do so. Now, why have I taken so much time to define these terms and to give you these illustrations? Here's why. Because not just that it's a starting point for our conversation and for a discussion about this, but also when you read Colossians three eleven, you and I do not feel what was felt when Paul said there is no Jew or Greek. We don't feel it. We don't feel barbarian and Scythian. Those terms have no emotional connection to us. We don't have a history with those terms. And here's the thing. And without feeling the history of those terms, you miss the power of what is being said. If you can wrestle with the horror of the meaning of words, you then can experience the power of hope when Jesus comes to transform it. When you wrestle with the depravity of the story, you can rest and rejoice in the narrative of redemption that is to come. So Paul's point is that the gospel is powerful enough to create a new starting point, a new foundation, a new identity, a new self that is being renewed after the image of the creator. Even the most emotionally charged categories, the most deeply held divisions can be conquered with the power of Jesus as his image becomes more foundational to our history, our ethnicity, our culture, our sin issues, our hurts, our pains. That's what the church was meant to be. And that's what Paul's speaking into. So what do we do? Well, we got to think through where our sense of identity comes from. we got to think through, how did I get where I am today? In terms of my thinking about this very issue of race, racism, and ethnic harmony. The challenge is that every single one of us have a cultural narrative. A narrative that you grew up with what you heard or didn't hear in church, what you read in history books, what your parents told you. And it may not have been overtly anti-ethnic or racist, but yet there's still a narrative. Let me give you an example, a personal one. Some of you have heard this story. It's the best one that I have, and it helps inform even how we are here today and how I got here. When I was in seminary, I was an admissions counselor for a university, which was a part of the seminary that I was getting my training in. My territory involved inner-city Grand Rapids, and part of my role was to go and meet with pastors to try and recruit students. And one of my appointments was with a leading African-American pastor in the city. I was really honored that he met with me. So I went there with our diversity director. Never forget, I was meeting with him in his office. He had the whole package of a senior leader in the city as an African-American pastor. This guy was at the top of influencers in our city. And I attempted to help him to know that we wanted more students from his church to come to our university, virtually an all-white university. And he said to me that that would be extremely difficult because the kids in his church didn't have the same opportunities that most of the kids had that were coming to our university. And immediately that triggered something in me. And in my youthful arrogance, I pushed back. I jumped on the familiar narrative, and I said to him, wait, wait, wait a minute, sir. My grandfather came to this country in the 40s. He wasn't able to speak any English. He had five kids. He worked himself to death to make a life for his children. This country is filled with opportunities. That's the cultural narrative. I'll never forget. He sighed, and he said, Mark do you think that your grandfather and my grandfather would have had the same shot for the same job in the 1950s in Kalamazoo, Michigan? And what was so alarming about that question was I knew the answer was no, and I had never thought about that question. It wasn't even on my radar. And I said to him, no. And he said, think of the difference that that has made in your life. And in that moment, something happened. My heart shattered, and I started weeping in his office, uncontrollably. It was like the categories of my life just went And assumptions that had been assumed for all of my life suddenly now I had to rethink, and it was so hard, so painful, so traumatic, and as well, I was horribly embarrassed that I had never thought about that question. How could I not think about that question? That question didn't even exist in my cultural narrative. And as I'm in a mess, this other colleague said to the pastor, what's going on here? And he said, sister, our brother has just seen something he's never seen before. And he was right. You see, that moment was consequential because it challenged my cultural presuppositions. You see, even in West Michigan, there's a mantra. It goes like this, "If if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And I know why you laugh, but church, I don't laugh anymore at that. And in order for racial or reconciliation to happen, we have to get underneath our cultural and historical assumptions. We have to get back to asking ourselves, what is, what is informed my thinking on this? Is my upbringing, history books, the news that I watch, the podcasts that I listen to, the books that I read, and where does the Bible and the church fit into that milieu? That's why we're doing this series, It's just to ask you to ask those questions. Gospel practice. <clears throat> so, after Paul says this in verse 11, he then says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. he takes the positional reality and now applies it in light of who you are this is how you ought to live so what paul does here is classic is he connects the gospel to other realities he connects the gospel to moral realities for instance if you believe the gospel you shouldn't be committing adultery right there's moral implications of the gospel there's social implications of the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you should have kindness towards other people and you shouldn't lie. And additionally, there are societal implications that you ought to go out and use the gospel to both preach the gospel and then let the gospel have its work. Now, some of you immediately are kind of going down a road, a very familiar one of, oh, this is just a social gospel. Friend, here's my, here's my perspective. I'm not preaching a social gospel. Social gospel is a belief that the care of souls through salvation should be eclipsed with doing good works. Like someone famously said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I don't believe that at all. But I do think that the gospel has social justice implications. Christians should love what God loves. They should hate what they hate, what God hates, I think William Wilberforce, when he was abolishing the transatlantic slave trade in the 1800s and worked his entire life, was simply living out the implications of the gospel. So in Colossians 3, we see this where there needs to be kindness, humility, and what's interesting is Paul in verse 12 says, we are to put these things on Now, this is an idea of not putting on something that's unfamiliar. The tense in the original language is be who you already are. In other words, if the gospel is true, then these things should characterize the church. You may have heard it negatively said this way if the shoe fits, wear it. Paul's point is this the shoe fits, so wear it. The shoe fits. Above all these, verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together. Notice, in perfect harmony, that word means maturity, and the ESV translators render it as harmony in order to communicate two different notes of music that independently are good, but when they're put together, they make something even better. In other words, the piano is beautiful because it has white keys and black keys. And the church is beautiful, not because it is simply one ethnicity. And then verse 15 presses it even further by addressing the matter of peace with Christ. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is not like, I feel at peace in my soul. He's not talking about that. He's talking about peace among each other, and to be thankful So the question is, can you be thankful that there are people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds who like things that you don't like? Can you worship through them as they worship? Can you hear what they are saying and be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get irritated? What Paul is saying here is that what should characterize the church that had some difficult divisions in it was this beautiful power of unity and peace. So what are some next steps? First, some of you, it's a good start that you just came today. You saw I was gonna do this topic, you were immediately like, ah, for real? And you came and you've listened. And I wanna say, well done. Instead of running the other way and finding all kinds of justifications for it, as has happened so often in the church, you came and you listened. Please come back next week. Plus, you don't lose an hour of sleep, so it's all good. (laughs) Second, I want you to think a little bit differently about the subject of ethnic harmony and racial reconciliation. Most of us, this is from a guy named Jamar Tisby, most of us would fall in the category of non-racist. We know that racism is wrong, and most of us would fall in the category of non-racist. And I just want to push you a little bit to say, but could you become somebody who's actually anti-racist? Not just non-racist, but anti-racist. You do this with abortion. I mean, you know that committing abortion is wrong, and you think that people should believe that abortion is wrong. So committing it's wrong and believing that it's right is also wrong, but you don't stop there. You want people to be anti-abortion, to fund initiatives, to stop the plight of abortion. And I'm just suggesting that the same thing should be true about racism even though it's far more complicated in a nuanced discussion than the clarity that comes simply with the issue of abortion. I know it's more complicated, but the point is, there's far too many of us who are comfortable in this position. I'm not racist, I don't say racist things. Awesome. I'm saying that if the Bible says this, let him who stole steal no longer, but give, work with his hands and give to those who are in need, then in counseling we would say it this way, when does a liar stop being a liar? When he stops telling lies, No, when he starts telling the truth. So it's not enough just to be non-racist. That's a good start. But to encourage you to become the kind of person who's actually anti-racist to be able to see the power of what the gospel can do, to not just not be wrong and sinful, but to actually be the kind of person that says, I believe in Jesus, and I think Jesus bought people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and I believe that the multi-ethnic church is not just something that needs to be in the future, I think it needs to be now, because it says something glorious and beautiful about who Jesus is when people from all walks of life love one another and find ways in commonality to get along in the hardened spirit of Christ and who can deal with their past and the pain and Go there so that they can see the beauty of the redemption that's found in Christ. Amen. I'll leave you with John Perkins, evangelist, civil rights leader, author of a great book called One Blood. There is no institution on earth more equipped or capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. I believe that's true. I believe that's true about us, and I believe it needs to continue to be true. Father in heaven, we pray that your mercy would be upon us as we consider how it is that you would want to speak to us today. Lord, I thank you for a church that's willing to go here, wrestle with these issues, pray that you'd give us grace to love one another, to figure out what it means to be the body of Christ, to be who we are. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.